Lord, open up our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Amen. Well, just about two years ago, I preached one of the more painful sermons that I have ever preached. Uh, It was to a room full of high schoolers on a weekday morning. And I was, I was eager and excited and ready to go. And I think so much so that I neglected to notice the, the string of 17-year-olds coming into the bleachers with blank faces, just kind of lining and having a seat. And so I was pumped about my text and I tried to just open up insights and move around the lectern and kind of try to apply God's word like exactly where I thought kind of high schoolers live on a regular basis. And at the end of it, No response. The same blank faces that walked in were just as blank as they stood up and grabbed their backpacks and walked out to the hallway. No response was tough. No response is the worst. Well, let me me correct that. That's not true. There's really probably only one thing that could be worse than no response, and it would be a response of rejection. What's the only response that could have been worse than, than what happened that day? Well, if those high schoolers came in with just smiles ear to ear and like excited eagerness about God's word and they're sitting down and they leave cussing my name, right? And swearing about me in the hallway and saying, forget it and disagreeing with everything that I told them that morning with a terrible attitude and loud voices. That would be worse. Rejection is probably the worst. Now, I am assured from uh, all of the team here at Fishers that I will probably not be receiving that kind of reaction this morning because they have told me you guys are people who love to receive God's word. So I'm not sweating that today. But that is not that far from where we see Jesus in John chapter 6. Jesus evangelizes an adoring crowd with a painful response. Now, the way we're going to approach this text this morning is a way that actually is going to be helpful for us this summer. And it's a way that's going to fit in with the sermon series that we've already been doing because most of you guys know summer is a really special time of year, not just because of the weather, but because, man, there are opportunities that open up with people, our neighbors, especially folks who are unbelievers, that sometimes just don't happen that much over the course of the rest of the year. People just seem available, schedules seem flexible. So whether that's folks who are actually in your neighborhood or it's folks that you work alongside or it's folks who are friends or even family members, we oftentimes have more opportunity with these dear folks to share life and to share the gospel that we may not have otherwise. So today, although we are going to look at the message of this passage, and some of you guys love John 6. To some of you guys, this has been a staple verse for you in your life of comfort and of help to you. We are going to focus a little bit on the message, but today we're even going to focus a little bit more on the messenger. Jesus is a model for our evangelism. He's the perfect model for how we are to share the gospel And we're going to see just one big idea about our evangelism that we can model after Jesus' actions from our passage today, and it's this. Telling others to feed brings painful responses 
of need. And only God helps us be freed. We'll repeat that throughout, but let me say that one more time so we know what our big idea is today. Telling others to feed brings painful responses of need. And only God helps us be freed. So we're going to work through today our three aspects of evangelism throughout this passage and see what Jesus has done that we can actually, hopefully, receive some life change as we model after him. Let's start with the first aspect of our evangelism today, and that is telling others to feed. So in this dialogue between Jesus and an adoring crowd, they are in the synagogue at Capernaum at Passover time. So you knew that because we read those verses, right? We read verse 59 that that's where they're at, but it happens to also be Passover time. It says in verse 4 that we didn't read. And just the day before, Jesus had performed a sign. Now, some of you guys probably already knew this because when we were flipping to the passage, you probably saw above the beginning of chapter 6, it says something like, Jesus feeds the 5,000. So Jesus is in a town where there are probably 20,000 people who have come to him and are hungry, right? Because 5,000 people was just the men. And he takes five loaves and two fish and he breaks them, asking the Lord's blessing, and they multiply to satisfactorily feed that many folks with 12 baskets of bread left over. Marvelous. So then the next day, these same folks approach the shoreline looking for Jesus and they don't find him. And they also don't find his disciples. Why? Well, because they'd already gone, as we said before, to the other side. So they take some folks from a coastal town that's just a little bit south called Tiberias who had come up in the area, and they say, well, hey, let's go find Jesus. So they go, I'm always going to mess this up because you guys are different from me, but is this northeast for you guys? Yes. Okay, great. Thank you. So northeast here. So they go from the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee to the northwest west side from Bethsaida to Capernaum. So they travel about five miles across the Sea of Galilee to find where Jesus is. They hop in boats and they find him in the synagogue, Jewish place for teaching and worship there in Capernaum. Why is all of this important to the dialogue that's about to happen? Well, a couple reasons. First, because What did this crowd have on their minds from the day before? Bread. Jesus miraculously fed us. Wow, what a sign. What's he going to do next? But secondly, because what do Jews in the synagogue at Passover time talk about? Well, bread. They would have been talking about God's provision for Israel when he led them out of Egypt. They would have been reading verses like Exodus 16.4, which says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Talking about manna. And God's provision in the wilderness. So the fact that this adoring crowd has bread on the brain like two times over shouldn't surprise us based on where they are, when they're there, and what just happened. And so we actually find Jesus bringing up that topic right off the bat. As soon as they ask Jesus a question, that's where he goes. Let's read it. Verse 25. Rabbi, when did you come here? 
Jesus responds with an assessment of their motives by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus kicks off a dialogue that's going to build and build into a powerful proclamation of the gospel. A gospel that actually has him at the center. So what is Jesus teaching in his evangelism, in his telling others to feed? Well, he he has five movements to get his crowd to the point of where he's trying to take them. And we're going to cash these out a little bit more throughout, but let me, let me tell you what these five movements of this dialogue are of Jesus is telling them to feed. He, he moves them from earthly bread to heavenly bread to Jesus as bread to Jesus as bread to eat to Jesus as sacrifice. Now, we'll resketch those when Jesus does make a move. I'll, I'll make sure to tell you about it, that he's made one of these movements. But that's where he's taking them on this mountain of gospel truth to get them to the peak of a, even a new piece of revelation that's not been really shared before in this gospel for them to know about, and they're going to respond to it. So let me, let me pause to explain just for a second about some of the verbiage used in this passage. Jesus' teachings here probably best maybe all summarized by verse 51 encapsulates kind of all of it are hard sayings but on on this side of history and on this side of revelation right jesus has already died and risen and we have the remainder of the bible sketched out for us of teaching us what his life really meant we can see that jesus is teaching about feeding on him was about his sacrifice And our faith. He sacrificed his body to pay the penalty before God so that if we tell God we want Jesus to be ours, like food, our substitute, our Savior, then God will give us eternal life. That's what it means for Jesus to be the bread, the bread of life, the bread from heaven that we can feed on, that we can eat, that we can feast on. So let's apply this and let's see what telling others to feed means for us. Well, as we look at Jesus, Jesus is not swayed by an adoring crowd. He knows what his agenda is. He knows what his message is. And it's actually taking a Jewish belief and ritual and pointing it to himself. And he stays on that mission. What would our reaction be to an adoring crowd? What would you do? Or what do you do with people who are intrigued by you? They're interested in you. They're they're magnetized or, or attracted to you. Is your impulse to open up and share the truth that they really need to hear? Perhaps spiritual truth? Or is it so much to let them set the agenda, to kind of offer them so much understanding that you never speak a word about where their true spiritual needs can be met. We need to look after Jesus in this. 
because I'm sure everybody in here has people who are interested in us, but they may be people we've never shared the gospel with. I love Jesus in this passage among many because in his sharing of the gospel, he is the perfect blend between compassion and conviction. And those may be words you've already heard throughout this series of coming to Jesus, but I love that, that we see it again in this passage, that he compassionately, in verses 1 through 15, knows these people, knows their needs, and he feeds them. You can't get more caring than that. But he's not just compassionate. He doesn't sway from his deep conviction that they have a need that must be addressed. And so he shares with them that gospel and that message here. So, friends, as we go, because we know that we are, we we know that the end of the gospel of Matthew clearly says, go and make disciples. That we're called to be so filled up so satisfied with the bread of heaven that we're pouring over. But as we do it, we need to do it with both compassion and conviction. May God give us grace for that. So we see that we're to tell others to feed. But our second point, and there's no slide for this, but it's, it's where we're going, you guys know, brings painful responses of need. There's a reaction that telling others to feed brings painful responses of need. This passage is a dialogue between Jesus and this crowd. And at every turn, we see this crowd offering a next response of need to Jesus. Now, not telling him, hey, here are our needs, solve them. But what I mean by that is they're having an emotional need to react to Jesus in a certain way. Whoa, he said that. I feel like I need to act like this now at this point. And these are responses that we can expect as well if we're going to hold out the gospel truth to people and invite them to respond to it. So let's go through them. Let's go through the passage and find out what the six responses are that Jesus sees and that we can as well. The first is the response of need for the physical. This is in verse 26 and 27. Jesus opens the dialogue saying, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus does the first movement here. You probably saw that, right? He pushes them from earthly bread to wanting heavenly bread. And that's really good, right? Now, I'm working fairly hard alongside my wife, to try and build a relationship with our neighbors, our actual physical neighbors, now that we're in a house. And so we have been trying to figure out what are good bridges we can build, how can we spark a relationship, what does that look like? And so what did we do? Well, when Easter time came around, instead of just kind of sneakily, you know, dropping a church invitation into their mailbox and like running away, I just wrote a little letter. It said, happy spring. And as part of it, it was like, hope you're doing well. I'd love to get dinner with you. And part of it said, if you were looking for a church to go to on Easter, would love to have you come with ours. Just let us know. Here's our contact info. Along with it, made some Rice Krispie treats. Because who doesn't like Rice Krispie treats, right? Now, unfortunately for me, I had to throw away almost the entire first batch because I am literally that bad of a cook. Like three ingredients are too much for me, apparently, after eating about half of them. But regardless, um, and gave those to our neighbors because treats and gifts 
and meals are a wonderful way to invite people into relationship, aren't they? What a wonderful thing that is to do. And I highly recommend that as you're building relationships with people and building relationships with folks who say, hey, we're in a different spiritual place than you. We don't believe the gospel, but, but we may be interested in that if we engage more with you to go for it. But if treats and gifts and meals are the only thing that we ever do, then folks will miss their opportunity to hear the words about the only feast that will satisfy their soul. They'll never hear the gospel. So first, we do see a response of need for the physical. Second, we see the need to be eager but naive. This is verse 34. After Jesus tells them about heavenly bread, the crowd responds really eagerly. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. They weren't surprised about his teaching about heavenly bread. In fact, they had, they had already heard Jewish teachings up to that point that, you know what? In, in the Messianic age, when the king of Israel is really going to come, God's going to bring manna again. And so they had heard some teachings and weren't surprised by that. But the problem is, they were still seeking Jesus just for what he could give to them, not for himself. And that's a problem. The reason we know that is because their eagerness, as soon as Jesus teaches more of the gospel, withers. They were eager, but they were naive. And friends, it's a good thing for us to know that immediate excitement doesn't equal counting the cost of faith. As we interact with people or new believers or whatever, someone who's excited about spiritual things may not necessarily be someone who truly understands what following Jesus means. And as we share the gospel with people, we need to make space for them to know there really is a cost to be counted as you follow Jesus. So we see them being eager but naive. Third, we see the need to grumble. Verse 41 and 42. But before they get to the grumbling, Jesus does make another movement. He now pushes them from heavenly bread to Jesus as bread. And this is the climax verse up to this point. Verse 35. This is where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And what's their response? Hmm, verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? The Jews are grumbling about God's provision from heaven. Just like the Jews who went out in Israel in the wilderness complained about God's provision from heaven. They were grumbling as he said this. Friends, the crowd is turning on Jesus. They don't see how Jesus' origins match up. How can, how can Joseph and Mary be your parents and you're also from heaven? I, I don't get that. I'm going to grumble about that. And Jesus doesn't respond to them with the answer about his origins. No, he doesn't. You can see it, verse 43. He just says, 
do not grumble. And then in 44 through 47, he points the conversation back to their spiritual receptivity. Friends, folks are going to grumble against you if you're sharing this truth. We need to be prepared for that. But then, Jesus says one more thing here, and don't miss it. He pushes them from Jesus as bread to Jesus as bread to eat. And and he does this in verse 49. So, So look at that in your Bible, verse 49 through 51. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Now catch this. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Jesus tells them they have to eat him. But he goes one movement further, and here's my favorite part, because it's the new revelation about the gospel. He moves them from Jesus as bread to eat to Jesus as sacrifice, and he does it with one little word. Catch this, verse 51b. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. With one little word, Jesus is revealing that he is going to give himself for somebody, for something, for the world, for them to have life. Friends, this is substitutionary atonement. Jesus is going to be our sacrifice for us, our bread from heaven. But this doesn't elicit belief in the crowd. What does it elicit? Well, fourth, we see the need to dispute. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Man, this idea would have been repulsive to anybody, let alone Jews, right? And Jesus then doubles down on this claim in 53 when he responds, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Drinking blood was forbidden in Old Testament law. Just read Genesis 9-4. And obviously, eating someone's flesh was a horrible hostility to them. Right? Read Psalm 27. Like, that's what enemies do to you. They're going to eat my flesh, right? It's awful, totally anti-God thing to do. So they dispute how this gross teaching is even possible. What's the next response we see them give? Fifth, the need to be offended. Verse 60 and 61. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? And then Jesus here admits that there's even harder things for them to swallow, like his ascension that's coming. How, how, are, they gonna, how are they gonna figure that out if they can't understand this? And he points at his, that his words, this is the beautiful part here, that his words are spirit and life. That the spirit can use these words to give them life. But unfortunately, there are some of them who do not believe. Verse verse 64, they're offended. 
So what's the sixth and final response? Sixth, the need to abandon. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus taught them clearly that they were to feed on him, that the bread that he would give for the life of the world was his flesh. And what did this adoring crowd do? They grumbled and disputed and were offended and then abandoned him. This is a painful response to his sermon. If these men and women turn back, well, then where will that leave Jesus? Well, it will leave him on exactly the same mission that he was on when he started. Because Jesus knows he cannot ultimately control their response. They are responsible. Verse 64, and the Father is in control. Verse 65. Now, this is a difficult mystery for us, isn't it? This is a hard one. That God's working in his plan about the gospel, about salvation, is a everyone and no one dynamic. So let me use Jesus' words here, right? Everyone who looks on the Son of Man and believes in him should have eternal life. Verse 39. And no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. Verse 65. So what is this painful response and this difficult mystery about God have to do with us? Well, as we go and share the gospel, we too are not in control of people's responses. The people that we're burdened for, whom we pray for, the people that we are working hard to hold out the truth of life to, they may grumble and dispute and be offended or just abandon the truth. And that hurts. That hurts because we know the consequences of that awful decision. And it also hurts because we know what it feels like to have your eyes open and experience the gracious new reality of spiritual life with God. It's painful. It's hard. But friends, God is faithful. He's the one who, who grants a person's heart to be able to come to Jesus and to feed on him. And this is why our pleading with people should be matched with praying. Because only God knows. And only God has the power to save. But not just our pleading and our praying, but our praying needs to also be matched with purity. A humble heart that just says, God, your ways are higher than my ways. And you are perfect in both your justice and your mercy. And I trust you over myself, even with this person. Now, before we move on to our, our final aspect of our big idea, our final aspect of evangelism, we actually cheated. Because in this passage, there are not six responses. There's seven. 
There are six painful responses and there is one glorious response. So let's find out what that seventh response is. Go to verse 68 and 69. This is seventh, the need to believe. Verse 67 says, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Oh, what sweet relief. Praise God that Jesus stayed on mission. Praise God for Peter's response. Praise God that we actually get to see people believe and be saved. Sharing the gospel can bring pain, friends, but it's also so good in so many ways. It is so good. So Jesus has now revealed his gospel to them at a whole new level, and their response has been to believe. Peter's, Peter's response shows us a few things. I love this response. because You've got to look at exactly what did he say. He said a few marvelous things for us. First, there's no one else to go to that has what Jesus has. Jesus has the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else they can go to find that. But also, they've already believed in him. As the old hymn sings, no turning back, no turning back. And also, Peter calls Jesus a name. Did you see this? Did you see this in the text, what he calls him? He says, he's the Holy One of God. Now, surely that in part means he is the holy or set-apart one for God's purposes. He's going to accomplish God's purposes in a set-apart way that no one else could. Right? He's, he's Messiah. He's going to do this. He's going to be that kind of holy one, a set-apart one. But even more beautifully, 30 times in the book of Isaiah, God is called, guess what? The Holy One of Israel. Verses like Isaiah 41, verse 14, that says, I'm the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Jesus is the defender and the Redeemer of his people. If that's true, if they know Jesus is the Holy One, where else are they going to go? He is the Holy One of God. And what I appreciate about Peter's confession is it wasn't that they weren't confused. <laughs> maybe, maybe even dizzyingly so, right, at this point of this teaching, where they're at with Jesus. But it is that, as one commentator puts it, when faced with that reality, belief allowed Peter to stand where there is life despite its utter incomprehensibility. And we're called to do the same. To whom shall we go? Eternal life can be found nowhere else but here in Jesus. And so this brings us to the third and the final aspect of evangelism. Telling others to feed brings painful responses of need and only God helps us be freed. 
Because friends, we do need to be freed from what holds us back from doing the whole first half of this passage, right? We need to be freed from fear of man, under engagement, right? Oh boy, do I struggle with that. But we also need to be freed from control, over engagement, demanding a sort of response from people or that people always meet me on my terms and give me what I want. Neither one of those is like Jesus. And so how do we do that when we share the gospel? How do we actually find the ability to do it like Jesus did? Where did Jesus find the freedom to be as bold as he was? Well, the Trinity. How is God at work? Well, we've seen him all over this passage, and you probably did too, that this is just dripping with the Trinity, that the Father is sovereign, that Jesus is faithful, and that the Spirit is active. We see it right here in the text, so let me just read it to you, right? The Father is sovereign. Jesus says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You can't control other people's responses, but we can trust a Father who's good, who's in control, and who has given his Son for us. And Jesus is faithful. He said to them, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. We can trust Jesus to bring eternal life. And that the Spirit is active. Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. We can trust the Spirit to bring life. So, when faced with painful responses to the gospel, where do we turn to? We turn to the same God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has freed us to share the words of life with others and leave the ultimate results up to him. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is true, telling others to feed brings painful responses of need, but God, you alone help us be freed. So we ask that you would now free us from our fear of man and from our desire for control and instead empower us to be gospel ambassadors to our neighbors and our coworkers, and our family, and our friends, in a way that your spirit would honor and bring them to eternal life. And give to them, along with us, the deep soul satisfaction that only comes from the bread of heaven, your son. Be with us now as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.